be continuing our series through Isaiah. Today we'll be looking appropriately at Isaiah chapter 61. We've been asking this question, or Isaiah grows in us this question, given what a holy God knows about our stubborn rebellion against his design and rule, the design and rule of his grace, what will he do? What can he do? How will he do it? And because of what we know about ourselves and what we know about how we act toward one another in light of what we know about ourselves and one another, we expect such a holy God to simply write us off, to simply destroy us, which is in fact precisely what we find among the gods of the nations because, after all, they are but projections of our greatest and highest instincts and experience ourselves. But, as we have been seeing, this is not what we find. While that is what we would expect, having come to the end of chapter, Isaiah chapter 39, and Israel's proven stubborn unbelief and disobedience, what we find rather is a double portion of grace and mercy. Comfort. Comfort. To my people. He promises to make peace, to restore all things to a comprehensive and cosmic flourishing of human life and of all things, which of course he can do because he's all powerful. The question then becomes how? How can this holy God make peace with a stubbornly rebellious? world without compromising his holiness and his justice and his righteousness? How can he be gracious and merciful without compromising his justice and holiness? How can those things go together in perfect harmony without internal tensions? The answer to that question is what turns out to be the gospel according to Isaiah. For the last couple of weeks, we have considered the beauty of what that God accomplishes and the bounty of what that God accomplishes and the way that we enter into participation and experience of that beauty and bounty, namely, by rightly recognizing and rightly responding to the glory of that God. But it still leaves the question, how did he do it? That he did it is stunning. That he did it is bountiful. But how did he do it? And that brings us then to Isaiah chapter 61. With that in the back of your mind, listen to God's word. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord 
has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for the display of his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, Love, justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations. Their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God to us by his son, the reigning King Jesus. As we gather before all the nations to behold his glory. So let us go to him in prayer. And so, Father, it is that we come to this point in this hour that you have set aside by the powerful working of your Spirit to this, your Word. And we confess that it is a Word that appears to us to be very common. It is, comes to us in the language we use every day. But the longer we stare at it, the more we recognize that we need your help to hear it and to see it and to respond well. So to that end, grant us your spirit, guard us from error, feast us upon your truth, 
that we may behold your glory. For we pray it in Jesus. Amen. As we have said a number of times already this morning, today is Christ the King Sunday. It is the culmination of the Christian year. The Christian year moves through the life of Christ. It begins with his birth or his advent as we often call it. And it moves through his life to his suffering, his death, his burial and resurrection and ascension. And it continues through his continuing life and ministry and the life and ministry of the apostles and those who believe and follow the tradition of the apostles even down to our very day. All as a celebration of his continuing and growing reign as the cosmic king. I recognize that it is extremely difficult for us as heirs of enlightenment thought in North America and Western Europe to visualize the reality of a flesh and blood ascended one who reigns supreme over all things even at this moment. But that is what we remember and celebrate on Christ the King Sunday. Years ago, as a way of trying to understand and explain how some people could profess faith in such a king, profess faith in Jesus risen from the dead and reigning, and yet live lives that were not in keeping with the values of Jesus, some began to speak about the possibility of believing him as Savior, but not bowing to him as Lord. This was came to be known as the so-called carnal Christian. And as with so many errors, it was perhaps well-intentioned, but it was fatally confusing. A fatal error. Leading people to believe that they were saved while continuing to live as they pleased. After all, the argument went... Jesus loves me, and he wants to give me the desires of my heart. It's a problem that persists even to our own day because it is a confusion that serves the purposes of the enemy of our souls. Let people believe whatever they want, our enemy reasons. Just keep them from actually bowing their knees in actual, visible, life-transforming obedience to Jesus as the reigning cosmic king. King of kings and Lord of lords. And so in our continuing series in Isaiah, we consider today, what does it mean that Jesus, the Christ, is the king. What does it mean that we are the people of such a king? And perhaps more to the point, what does it mean that such a king delights to have such a people? What does it tell us about the king that we serve? 
Our passage today is the passage that Jesus himself used to answer that question. It's the passage that Jesus himself used in Luke chapter 4 to invite us into a faithful and fruitful consideration of that question. Who am I? And who are you because of who I am? This is the passage he used to publicly introduce himself and his ministry. As he read it one day in the synagogue, he sat down and he looked at the people and he said, Today this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. Today I come to you as the one by whom the reign of God's great and cosmic and promised shalom has come. The passage begins, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord, the covenant making, covenant keeping God, the Lord has anointed me. He has appointed me and anointed me. He has called me out. He has set me apart. This is who I am. I am the man. I am the one. To bring good news, to bind up brokenhearted, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is the summary statement that Jesus himself ends with. This year of the Lord's favor, the backdrop of that is this year of jubilee. I just want to focus on that for just a little bit. The hope of Jubilee. It was promised back in Leviticus chapter 25. It was commanded back in Leviticus chapter 25. It's helpful to remember how Jubilee fit into the calendar of the Jewish life and ministry. How it fit into their hope. There was a rhythm to the life of Israel... And it was punctuated every seven days with the Sabbath. It was a day in which we get, even then and even now, a day in which we get to revel in the blessings that our God reigns. We get to behold His glory. We get to taste and see it. We get to celebrate it every week, every seven days. We get to cease from our own worries and our own frantic activities and frenetic activities and rest in the wonder of his great provision and his bounty. That's the Sabbath day. That's the Sabbath vision. And then every seven years, you don't just get a a Sabbath day, you get a Sabbath year, a sabbatical year in which you and all in your household get to rest. You get a whole year of of playing kingdom of God upon the earth as it is in heaven. You get a whole year to actually live together as though God himself had descended and made his dwelling among men. Reigning supreme. Providing for every need. A whole year. 
then, every seven sets of sabbaticals, you get a year of jubilee. It's not just a gift of rest. It's a gift of restoration. It's a gift of freedom. It's a gift of returning. It's a gift of belonging. It's a gift that says our God reigns and our God's reign is good and bountiful. Because our God is good and bountiful. That's the Old Testament background. Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee, is a year of release and of return and of restoration. You're released of all your debts. Wow! Can you think, think about how great does it feel when you make your last car payment? Doesn't it feel great? What if the bank actually called you and said, Hey, yeah, no car payment. You're done. What? That would be awesome. And the bankers in our midst are saying, that is stupid. That would kill us. And that's just a car payment. What would happen if that, what would you do if your bank called up and canceled your car payment? You'd call and you'd say, dude, let's go to dinner. I got an extra 350 bucks because my debt is canceled. Or if you're like me, you'd say, great, I got 350 bucks to put towards other debts. In the year of Jubilee, you were, you were released. You were released from all your debts. You can read Leviticus 25 and look into the details of that because some of you actuaries are going through and you're, you're thinking, oh my word, how is this going to work? How do, you calculate, how do you calculate who owes who what? But that's the point. The year of Jubilee comes. Boom. December 31st, you're in debt. January 1st, no more debt. None. But not only are you released from all debts, financial and social and otherwise, but you're actually, you're actually returned to your home place. I love that word. It's an old-fashioned word that we only run into here in the South. The old home place. It's the old home place. You can't really appreciate, unless you've grown up in the South, you cannot really appreciate the emotional impact of talking about the old home place. You watch the eyes of people who will tell you stories of the old home place. And you will know what I'm talking about. There are roots that run deep in the old home place. I'm not native born to the south and so it doesn't come to me naturally. However, a while ago, I had the privilege of going with a friend of mine on a day trip up into the mountains to his old home place. And it was amazing to watch the joy bubble out and overflow as he told stories of this hill and that cave, describing life in the old home place 
This is me. This is where I belong. This is my home. These are my people. They know me. I know them. We belong here. And that's the language here of, of returning. Released from all debts and we returned home. But not only so, but we're restored to dignity. You see it there. But think now for a moment before we get into that. Think now for a moment of the absurdity of this. Just, just, let's just think in terms of economics, in terms of finances. The absurdity of returning property, of canceling debt. For us, in a debt-based economy such as we have in our nation, it is the default human setting, this debt-based way of thinking about things. It's the default setting for social and spiritual as well as financial structures. It's the way we are wired to keep an, an official or an unofficial ledger of accounts owed. Who do I owe? Who owes me? And in a debt-based economy, if you want to see it financially, you just look around. But if you want to see it especially played out before your very eyes in ways that are stunning, go to Japan in terms of how Japan operates as a society. It's a very carefully recorded record of who owes who what and how much. When Mako and I were married, we received all kinds of wedding gifts. Isn't it wonderful? Don't you love weddings? You receive all kinds of wedding gifts. But in Japan, you have to very carefully calculate the value of the gifts and then return a gift of about one-third the value of what you received to that person. It's a very carefully structured system. So imagine for a moment, if we're in that kind of system, system, system socially or financially, imagine now that we're going to call 2020, the year 2020, the American Year of Jubilee. Wouldn't that be awesome? No more debt? You get to go home, all belongs to you, fresh start, all property restored. If our economy survived the shock of such a thing, the result would be radically different in a way that we would not recognize. But think about this. What if only... In North America, what if only those who were Jesus followers canceled the debt of other Jesus followers? You realize the impact that that would have in our society? Just that. Never mind larger macro social structures. The year of Jubilee was a year of release and of return and of restoration. And so he comes proclaiming good news to the poor. The year of Jubilee has come to bind up the brokenhearted 
the year of Jubilee has come. Proclaim liberty to the captives, the year of Jubilee has come. The release from prison of those who are bound, the year of Jubilee has come. To proclaim the year of Jubilee, the day of vengeance of our God. A year of comfort. Think now, if, if you've been able to take in this concept of the year of Jubilee and internalize it, and if you've allowed your heart to flutter at the possibility, think for this for a moment. For whom is such a year of Jubilee most urgent? Who is most eager for the year of Jubilee to dawn? Who do you think were actually counting the days until the promised year of Jubilee? And conversely, who do you think was wishing they could hold it off just a little bit? And what do you think was the effect on these people when the time came and the leadership said, oh, that? Yeah, well, we're not doing that this year. You see, the year of Jubilee was promised and the year of Jubilee was commanded, but we have no record that it was ever actually celebrated. It was a great Sabbath promise that was never kept. How disheartening is that? Can you imagine the people who were living in anticipation of the year of Jubilee and they woke up January 1st of that year and the powers that be said, oh yeah, yeah, we're not doing that this year. It'll kill the economy. We're going to wait. And it never came. Well, I'll tell you who it was. It was the poor. It was the brokenhearted. It was the captives. It was those who were bound in prison. It was those who were mourning. Those who were covering themselves in sackcloth and ashes. Those who couldn't go on another day. It was the sinners and tax collectors. They're the ones that are waiting for this long-promised but perennially deferred year of Jubilee. It was the least and the lost and the lonely. It was those of our, that our society and our world has esteemed as the least, the lost and the lonely. Those that are overlooked, those that are marginalized, those that are not seen as worth treating. And so they're sent home. That is who this one is speaking to. 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news. Where? To the poor, brokenhearted, to the captives, to those who are bound. It's important that you tie this back to chapter 60 and verse 12. Because the people in chapter 60 and verse 12 who have beheld the beauty of God's glory are those who, in seeing the beauty of God's glory, recognize, oh my word, those are the people that he loves. And recognize in themselves their need for that love. These are the people that will then Verse 3, they will be made oaks of righteousness. So that, the end of the last half of verse 3, so that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified, is how the ESV reads. An alternative is that he may or they may display his glory. How would they do that? Well, because the least and the lost and the lonely have nothing in and of themselves by which to glorify God. Except that which he does to them. By the grant of jubilee. (coughs) How do they do that? They become repairers of the ancient ruins. They raise up the former devastations. They are repairers of ruined cities. And if you flip over, you will see that they are people of the double portion. Verse 7. A double portion, a double portion of everlasting joy. But I want you to see something here. Who is this one who has brought it? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. We've, we've, we've heard throughout Isaiah with building intensity and building clarity that there is one, a servant, a redeemer, who is on the horizon, who is promised. And now in, verse, in chapter 61, we meet them. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. To proclaim, to comfort, and to grant so that his glory may be seen. That is really amazing. But there is an absurdity that exceeds the absurdity of the year of Jubilee here. We've actually already heard it referenced in today's service. The real absurdity is that biblical justice turns out to be biblical replacement theology. Now, some of you who have a background in theology know that I'm referencing a theme in theological studies is called replacement theology, which teaches that the New Testament church replaces Israel and the Jews as the chosen ones of God and so the rightful heirs of all the promises, which I think is mistaken. However, 
The fact is, however you take that, real, genuine, biblical replacement theology is that the specially appointed and anointed one of God not only cancels our debt, he replaces our debt with his wealth. He actually replaces our shame with his glory, and not only so, but a double portion of it. He replaces us. It's not we that replace any other people. That would be a waste of time because that would just be rearranging patterns of sin. But he replaces us. This specially appointed and anointed one actually comes in and takes the place of this stubbornly rebellious people who have so steadfastly proven their inability to see and believe and rightly respond. This is not what was in view in the promise of Jubilee. In the promise of Jubilee, there was the promise of debts paid, which was super. It was the promise of debts canceled. That's amazing. Not only so, but debts canceled and a brand new start. Who wouldn't want that? How many times have you wished that life had a reset button? But the year of Jubilee as fulfilled exceeds the bounds of the promise itself. Because it is debts taken and wealth granted. It's too much for us to even imagine. For those of us who live in a debt-based economy, it is unimaginable that anybody would actually take upon himself my debt and grant to me his wealth. Take upon himself my shame and grant to me his glory. Take upon himself my name and my failures and grant to me his name and his successes. What's in it for him? It makes no sense. Notice in verse 3, to grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Three times in that verse, instead, instead, instead. And if you're paying attention, you will ask yourself, now why does he say that three times? Why does he come up with this threefold instead, instead, instead? Because that is the glory of our holy, holy, holy God who delights to replace our shame with his glory. Verse 7 continues, because it exceeds even the bounds of his glory, if, you, if that's possible. Instead of our shame, a double portion, instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. They shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. This is so wildly 
unbalanced. It is so one-sided. I get all the benefit and he gets all the curse? Yes. But it's so offensive to us. It seems so unjust. It seems so unfair. And to channel Tim Keller here, until we understand the scandal of how unfair and unjust it is, we have not heard the gospel. Because look at verse 8. What is the rationale for this wildly out of balance fulfillment of the year of Jubilee? For I, the Lord, love justice. That's not at all what we think. We think, I, the Lord, love mercy. I, the Lord, love grace. This is not the rationale we would give for what we're seeing here unfold as the year of Jubilee. The rationale we would give is not, I love justice. We cringe when the Lord says, I will give you justice. Until we see how he gives justice. This is who he is. Isaiah has spent his entire ministry from Isaiah chapter 6 on trying to tell his people, people, this is the glory of your God. This is the glory of your God. He delights to forgive sin. He delights to wash you clean. He delights to cleanse your lips. He delights to clothe you in robes of righteousness. His glory is in forgiving those who have become painfully aware of their sinful condition. Who understand themselves to be the least, the lost, and the lonely, the wandering sheep that the shepherd would pursue. That's what he says in Exodus chapter 34. Brothers and sisters, you understand that Isaiah chapter 61 is, this, is the scandalous center of Jesus' ministry. This is what Jesus was embodying whenever he sat down to have dinner with sinners and tax collectors. He was saying, if you knew the promise that Isaiah is talking about, you would recognize this is the glory of the Father. Which is what's so stunning. Who is this then that later? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. He has clothed me with garments of salvation. Covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. As a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprout. As a garden causes what is sown to sprout up. So the Lord causes righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. The poem began with the anointed one speaking. And it ends with the song of the least and the lost and the lonely who have been made new, who have been clothed in the robes of, this, of the anointed one's righteousness. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means that Christ is the king. 
This is what it means when we, by our profession, that Christ is our King and that we are somehow stunningly His people in whom He delights. We are a part of His kingdom and His kingdom agenda and His kingdom mission. He doesn't reign for our happiness. He reigns for His glory. He doesn't reign to secure for us our dreams. He reigns to cultivate in us His holiness. We fit into His plans. We don't fit. He doesn't fit into our plans. You see, since Christ is the King, the Anointed One by whom the Triune God secures and administers the fullness of His peace, we must ask the question, how do we fit into His continuing plan of Jubilee? How do we fit into His continuing plan to release and to return and to restore the least, the lost, and the lonely? When we find ourselves saying, well, that's all well and good, Pastor, but how does that apply to my life? We expose our foundational conviction that our life as it is now is well and good. And that, God's, and that Christ somehow must find his place within the structures of my life already in progress. But when we profess that Christ is the king, we profess that his agenda rules, not mine. His life is the pattern, not mine. He comes as a part of his grace to, to replace our agendas, to call us to his life instead of our life, to his glory instead of our glory. As Michael Horton describes it in The Gospel-Driven Life, he writes this, the working assumption in much of contemporary North American Western European thought is that Christ, uh, North American Western European Christianity is that modern culture, whether sociology, psychology, anthropology, business, marketing, politics, education, medicine, ethics, etc., has for the most part properly interpreted human identity and the ideals of proper human flourishing. And we further assume it simply lacks some crucial methods for attaining those goals. And this is where we typically introduce the Bible as the answer to life's questions. This is where the Bible becomes relevant to people, where they are in their experience. This is where we ask how to apply the scriptures to our daily lives. But brothers and sisters, Horton continues, this is to invoke the Bible too late, as if we already knew what life or daily living meant. The problem is not merely that we lack the right answers, but that we don't even have the right questions until God introduces us to his design for reality and the person of the anointed an appointed king. Christ as the king 
the appointed and anointed servant to usher in the year of the Lord's jubilee. That long-promised, now-fulfilled year of jubilee reveals to us the glory of the triune God himself and the glory of his design for reality. It's what scripture calls shalom. It is the cosmic human flourishing inaugurated by the year of jubilee. And when Jesus opened up Isaiah chapter 61, and as recorded for us in Luke chapter 4, he said... That long-promised year of jubilee has dawned. It is a grant to you of God's amazing grace. 200-proof, 1,500-year-old 1500 grace. Pure distillate of Scripture. Don't mix it. Savor it. Because Christ the King reigns today. So Father, we pray that you would grant us, even as Paul prayed, the courage and the strength to actually hear the wonder of your amazing grace. To be changed by it. To be captivated by it. And Father, that you would create in us a hunger and thirst for righteousness that is satisfied in Jesus. And a hunger and thirst to walk in his steps, to think his thoughts after him, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates. And so reorder us, Father, we pray, because your son, Jesus the Christ, is the reigning king. And we are his people, your children. In his name, amen.